Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome, Annika, and thanks so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Our Sunburnt Country. Thank you so much, Anthea, for having me on the show. It's a real privilege to meet up again and to have the chance to speak with you. The secret of change is to focus all your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. That's a quote from Dan Millman in the book that speaks to so much of the spirit of this brave, uplifting book. Annika, can you describe what your book is about and what your intention with it is? Well, thank you for that introduction on the book and that beautiful quote from Dan. Yes, so Our Sunburnt Country was released at the end of August, and it is a book about how climate change is impacting the food system, the very real implications, you know, to what we can grow, where we can grow it, how it's affecting farmers around the world. But it is also a book of courage and vision and encouraging the reader to look forward to a future that we can help design together at this point in time. Telling stories to help fast track ways to build the new and to give people greater confidence and and hope almost to to sort of bypass cul-de-sac arguments that can otherwise be so depressing in our climate debate is pretty central to it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think of climate change, we can often feel quite overwhelmed and daunted or the science is presented in a way which is quite academic and abstract. And I guess this book is trying to fill a space of, well, this is the humanity that's caught up in the climate crisis. This is real people's stories. These are stories of people who live and work so closely with the natural world, the farmers. They're very real concerns about what climate change means to their production systems, food security in their communities. But it is also sharing their stories of what they're doing about it. And when I was conducting the interviews for this book, I was just so inspired listening to people around the world and right along the food system from farmers, scientists, advocates, nutritionists. And they were people so full of, you know, hope and vision and doing something, actively playing a part in trying to get on top of this problem. And I was just, you know, so motivated and energized by their stories that I felt, you know, wow, like I feel incredible responsibility in sharing them, you know, truthfully and authentically. But, you know, what a privilege to be able to share these stories with the world too. And courage, as you've said, and the imperative to cultivate climate courage is is key to it all, as is a deep sense of optimism and of stepping out of our comfort zone. Is that right? Exactly. So courage is one of the central themes of the book. And I think it's a very important you know, word that we reflect on because, yes, the science, you know, it it is complex, it is daunting, it is scary at times, but we shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't dismiss it or downplay it. We should look at it in the eye, know what it tells us, know what it asks of us, and then actually act on it. And when we actually start acting and understanding the abundance of solutions that are actually out there, the conversation actually becomes quite exciting, I think, because there are many, so many solutions out there. Early in the book, you tell of being shy and introvert and reluctant to present at school and the courage it took to speak up. Today, you're a much sought after speaker and an expert on agroecology, farming and food systems, and of course, climate change. Your book is very personal and in it, you share stories from your childhood, of your beloved granny, and about your family's journey from suburban Melbourne to your family farm in far western New South Wales, and of your growing love for that place, your connection to it, and with growing food, raising sheep, regeneratively in a very fragile landscape. Can I ask you, Annika, what especially motivated you to write this particular book and why now? 
Well, I guess I've always loved writing. Like I've always enjoyed the craft of arranging words in certain orders, which creates, you know, a, a visual image in someone's mind and potentially, you know, captivates them at an emotional level and spurs them to think and act differently. So I love the magic of writing. And I've always had notebooks scattered around the house, you know, of little ideas or little quotes that have really resonated with me. And I guess, you know, one day I would love to write a book was always, you know, a thought in the back of my mind, but it had never eventuated because life is busy and one sort of puts aside one's passions and ideas like that, unfortunately. And it wasn't until the start of 2020 when COVID was really escalating here in Australia and my calendar of activities was suddenly wiped clean that I had this spare time on my hands. And so I sat down on the bedroom floor and I lay out all these sheets of paper and I thought, okay, well, if I was going to write a story, what would I write about? What are the themes? How would you do it? And I really sort of used a, almost a filmmaker's storyboarding technique of, okay, well, in the beginning, like setting the scene, then who are the characters I introduced along the way? What is the tension? What is the stress, um, you know, the urgency that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell in the story? And then how does the book end? Like, what's the resolution? How does one bring, you know, comfort and a sense of, okay, well, this is the final chapter to the reader. And I've never written a book before. So it was all quite a, a very new learning experience for me, but I really enjoyed learning that. And because this topic of climate change, food systems and farming is one that I find so deeply fascinating and am so deeply concerned about what could happen if we don't actually get on top of this problem, I thought, well, you know, I want to do as much as I can in this space. And if by writing a book and filling this, this gap that I do see out there, like that's a meaningful contribution. So I guess that's the reason that I then sat down and put pen to paper. <laughs> I think a lot of people got writing during COVID. So it's one positive, one of the upsides. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how does it feel now to have it out there in the world and, and perhaps in terms of the courage it took to write it and, and to release it and to expose your, you know, everything that it exposes with all, with all the beautiful things that are in it as well. Yes, well, it is, um, you know, at times quite a nerve-wracking thing, thinking, okay, I'm going to put a book out into the world about my story and my ideas and it's going to be something people can see and critique. And so one has to sort of get over that, you know, a self-doubt and, um, you know, imposter syndrome. And of course, you know, some days I was feeling great and going, yes, like this is going to be an amazing book. And then, you know, the next day I'd be like, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? This is, this is terrible. <laughs> I hope no one reads my book once it's published. So I really sort of rode the roller coaster of emotions in the, in the author journey. But now, last week actually was the first time I was able to walk into a physical bookshop and see my books sitting on the shelf. And it was such a, you know, a buzz of excitement, you know, just seeing it there and knowing, like, that was years of ideas and cultivating something. It took many months of me sitting in isolation writing that and, you know, the phone calls with people around the world who were so so incredible in that they shared their story with me and and gave it to me to then share to the world and so when I just when I look at that book on the the bookshelf now I, I can see all of that behind you know and around those pages and it brings me a great sense of pride knowing that it it's out there in the world now. So you should feel proud. <laughs> Your book is structured with pithy chapters as you say, your storyboard, <laughs> each ending with a punchy concept to cultivate that together progressively builds a story towards solutions, vision and action. As you've said, it's your first book. I was going to ask how did you go about launching into and writing it, but you've already beautifully described that. Can I ask you, along the way, in addition to all these amazing people you interviewed, did you have mentors or do courses or you know, or did you just launch in? Well, in 2019, I finished my PhD. So I had just come out of four and a half years of writing and, you know, very much science writing where, you know, you don't include any emotion or story or visual imagery in your words. You have to reference endlessly, whereas this is more <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's facts, figures, it's results. 
And I actually found that style of writing my PhD thesis very difficult. Um, personally, I find that a very challenging style to write in because I'm very much a, a creative and visual thinker and that's how I see my words and want to convey words when I do communicate. So when I then started writing my book, I still had that really academic writing style with me. And my very first you know, draft that I sent through to my publisher, she said, oh, it's quite sciencey still. And then you have sections where you're describing your farm or your family and it's beautiful and it's poetic and I can see this place. But then you go back into your science style. And she said, like, it's quite jarring at the moment. And so she really encouraged me to work on melding this, this science with the story and encouraged me to explore ways of doing that. I then joined a, a writing course because, yeah, as I mentioned, this is my first book. I had never taken writing, you know, writing a story seriously. And so I knew I had a lot to learn about this craft. So I joined the Australian Writers' Centre uh, Creative Writing Course or Narrative Nonfiction. So it is a course for nonfiction work, but it's how to include it, a story in there, how to present it in a way that is actually engaging. And I found that course brilliant. So I, you know, would go out for walks and listen to it with my headphones in and then I would come back to the, the desk and I'd scribble down notes of, okay, well, this chapter I'm going to work on these, like, techniques. And so it was a lot of, like, backwards and forwarding, re revising. And also when I was writing, one had to be very clear about who you were trying to communicate to, who is your audience, because you can't write for everyone. This book is for a particular audience. There were times when I wrote quite lengthy paragraphs and then I realised, well, that's actually not essential for this audience. And I just had to highlight and delete it. And I thought, you know, <laughs> as hard as that is, I have to make this book as best as it can be for the audience that I'm trying to communicate to. And I was going to ask you, who do you most hope the book will reach, touch and be read by? Who is your audience? Over time, I sort of really defined my audience and came to the conclusion that it is for an urban audience of middle to upper class socioeconomic situation who love food, who are conscious about their food choices, who go out and eat lovely food at restaurants and select more high end or high brand foods at the supermarket, but they feel disconnected from a farmer. They do. I see food and no food in its final form, but they're not conscious of where it begins or how they could play a role in shaping the food system that comes before that meal on the plate. And so that was the audience that I wanted to write for. Formerly in Australia, or do you see it having an international audience as well? Well, definitely I hope it will have an international audience and I have yeah, been sending books all around the world, which has been amazing. Uh, but there is an Australian focus to the book. Mm -hmm. Chapter four, Heartbreak, begins with, have you ever stood before an approaching dust storm and evokes the horror and heartbreak of the millennium drought for you, your family and for other farmers? There's also this lovely image of a teenage you <laughs> lying on the lounge room floor in 2006 and of your dad slipping on a new release DVD. It's Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. I know you and Philip Baker, who I've spoken with, are big believers in the power of the arts to shift social norms and perspectives, especially in relation to our food systems, social justice and the environment. Science gets to our logic, but the arts capture our hearts. And Al Gore's film has done that in so many ways for many, many people. Can you tell us something of how Al Gore's film has perhaps shaped your personal and professional journey to where you are today? Well, I guess that evening when my dad put on the film and I was sort of having a bit of a whinge of, oh my gosh, like I don't want to watch a film about the weather. How incredibly boring. <laughs> what a way to spend a Friday night. And then I watched the film and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what climate change is. And it was as though, you know, the dots were connecting in my mind of, 
okay, so this is the interrelationship between environment, people, economic systems, community stability. Humans are putting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. This is the flow and effect that is having. These are the the long-term consequences that it could have if we don't do something about this problem. And it just really succinctly told me the story of what climate change was. And I guess it opened my eyes of, oh my gosh, like this is a very real problem and it is a human-made problem. And it is something that we all have a responsibility to try to try and get on top of. And I guess it sort of encouraged me to look further into this issue. And that sort of sparked my interest in, you know, studying it at university and questioning people about it looking out to my own backyard and going, okay, so this drought is, is really bad. Um, you know, I can see it taking a, a mental toll on myself, my family, my community. The projections are saying that droughts like this are going to become more frequent, more intense. As a young person who's been dreaming of taking over my family farm when I'm older, what does that actually mean for me? Like, what does my future as a farmer look like? It was like all these questions that were floating around in my mind and the question of, well, what can I do about this? That really sort of landed with me and then sort of, I guess, spurred my whole career in this in this area so far. Yeah, like many people watch the film and I've also done the course, as have you, that, that incredible sense of the cascading and acceleration of extreme events on top of each other, yes. closer and closer together, really powerful. Exactly. Annika, in addition to being an accomplished and now published storyteller, you're a farmer who lives and works at the front line of climate change. You're an agroecology scientist with a Master's of Sustainable Agriculture and a PhD in Agriculture and Environmental Management. And your achievements and recognition already are far and wide and just, you know, humbling. Congratulations on your PhD, amongst other things. Thank you. You've travelled and worked internationally for your PhD research. You've worked on international agricultural development with organisations like ACIAR and other organisations in the field to help address sustainable agriculture and food security issues. And at home in 2014, you established ClimateWise Agriculture, And a few years later, you were one of the founders and are now deputy chair of Farmers for Climate Action. And that's a farmer-led organisation that advocates for climate solutions, which support rural communities. And FCA has just really grown into a major, major force within just a number of years. It's really, really amazing. One of the things I really love about your book is the way you relate climate change and its impacts to the everyday lives of people, farmers and eaters, current and future generations, here and overseas, and all with a deep sense of compassion, ethics and justice. In the chapter on fairness, you tackle how climate change is handed by the rich to be carried by the poor. And you tell the story of your time doing research in Southeast Asia and of feeling really overwhelmed by the randomness of what you call the birthright lottery um, of inequality between rich and poor. And those ideas also resound in the chapter Justice about the ethics of climate and intergenerational and also interspecies justice. Can you tell us about some of the key insights or stories or, you know, most moving visceral things you saw and interact with people about from some of the amazing young farmers and other people you've met as part of your international agricultural research and development work or perhaps even via all those phone calls you did for, for the book, I don't know what the mix of that might be, but I'm, I'm thinking of some of those amazing characters like Sheila Castillo or Anna de Lima or um, Uli from Tonga and your Cambodian colleagues. I mean, I have been so privileged to be able to do travel internationally and to meet incredible people, you know, my peers, and I am very aware of how lucky I am, you know, as a young female farmer to have been born in Australia and like what an amazing you know childhood and upbringing and education and career I have been able to have just by virtue that I was born in Australia and so I don't take that for granted and I don't think I should you know take it lightly at all because when I go overseas to Southeast Asia or speak with colleagues you know further (laughs) field around the world I am very aware that they bear a a lot greater and many more challenges than I do because of their situation. 
And I guess I talk a lot in the book about responsibility we have, and I do feel a great sense of responsibility because I have been so fortunate to live in a country with a stable political system, that I have had the chance to go to school and be well-educated, that I have been able to travel and gain a, a global perspective of these very challenging issues. And so I personally feel I need to do as much as I can in this space. When I was writing the book, I met the most incredible people and also before writing the book and as you mentioned Sheila in the Philippines she is you know one of the most beautiful people I've ever come across and I describe in one of the chapters how together when we were in the Philippines we walked through a landfill site it was the most horrifying and eye-opening experience because um, in this landfill in the the middle of Manila in the city people from farming communities had come to settle in the city hoping for a better life because farming had become so difficult in their rural community. A lot of these challenges exacerbated by climate change, you know, increasing cyclones and typhoons, um, salt inundation from storms, droughts, failed crops. And so these people had uprooted, moved to the city, couldn't find proper work or housing and had ended up living on the landfills, scavenging, you know, scavenging amongst the rubbish to survive. And it was just sort of the most heartbreaking thing because this is, you know, this is hell on earth. This is the worst of the worst of human condition that one could possibly imagine that a farmer had become so displaced by these challenging social and environmental challenges that they were now forced to live on a landfill, you know, the garbage of the world. And it was, yeah, it's hard to even put into words, you know, the, the scene, the, the people I met, the, the effect it had on me. But I thought, you know, how can we possibly allow this to happen? Climate change is a matter of, of justice, of human rights, of intergenerational equality we absolutely have to be tackling this problem because we cannot allow, you know, the, the human condition to deteriorate to such a point where we think it's acceptable for farmers to end up on a landfill site, you know. No and, and some of the other anecdotes, you know, from, from Brazil and from Cambodia, you know, go, go, to, the, go to the quick of um, deforestation and loss of rainforests and loss of biodiversity and how that's making it even more difficult for those farmers who are able to stay on the land to actually effectively farm because of changing heat, loss of soil nutrients and all the associated things. It's, it's such, a, such a big story and such a big part of our region and, of course, in Brazil. Exactly. And the problem with climate change, I mean, it's so, it's, it's so much driven by the wealthy, the affluent. Um, it is our societies and economies and lifestyles which are causing this problem to the greatest extent, but those people in the developing nations and especially the rural poor, uh, women, children, the, the elderly, the, the minority groups, they're the ones that are hardest hit by it, but they have least capacity to be able to adapt or to make changes. And so when they are hit by a flood, a drought, a family illness, they tumble very, very quickly into further hardship into places where they literally cannot extract themselves out of anymore. And so again, going back to that topic of responsibility, well, we here in Australia who are so fortunate have to be doing our fair share of getting on top of climate change to actually look after our, our fellow humans around the world. And our neighbours in the Pacific. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Annika. On the subject of kindness and cultivating courage together, you refer to the importance of framing and the need to work together to build compelling counter-narratives to the status quo. Are there some particular tips or tools that you've learned along the way or that you use in your speaking that you'd like to highlight that can help people to talk about climate change more engagingly or more effectively? Well, I think, you know, communicating in a way that is local personal, urgent, really helps with this topic. Um, but it's also talking from the heart. I mean, why do you care about climate change? Why do I care about climate change? I care about it because when I walk out into the paddock here at home, 
I am in love with my surrounds. I see, you know, kangaroos bounding across the landscape. I hear, you know, budgerigars chirping away in the in the wattle trees. Uh, I'm walking my dog with my parents, watching these spectacular sunsets. Like this is this is home. This I have a great sense of love and sense of responsibility to look after this place, and that's what actually drives me. You know, the thought that this place, this uh, amazing life that I'm living, is under threat drives me to act. And I think when one communicates from a position of love, you know, what we do actually really cherish, uh, that connects people at an emotional level. And we need to connect at a heartfelt level to then actually create mindset and behavioral change. Because stats and figures, yes, they're great and they're needed, but you don't feel that emotional connection to them. So we, we do definitely have to learn to be better storytellers and communicators in this space, connecting climate change with the humanity, uh, putting our own stories out there. And yes, it can feel daunting. Yes, we are putting ourselves into a, a place of vulnerability where we will be critiqued and inspected and questioned. And ridiculed. Yeah, but that's what we need. We need to be courageous and do that. I just found that very pithy, you know, story you tell or, or, or tip you give that rather than rather than tell stories that are reactive and oppositional, to really focus on sharing stories that are opt optimistic and propositional. And that, that's really, really powerful, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And so, so often in the climate change narrative, particularly here in Australia and particularly over the last few years, it hasn't been told well. And it's been you know, the cost of acting on climate change, the damage it will do, it will take away our jobs, it will ruin the economy. It's been very negative. It's been very threatening. It's been putting fear and concern and uncertainty in people's minds. Yet if we actually flipped that on its head and talked about the vision that we have in our minds, the world that we would love to create, where there is, you know, social equity and justice, where there is clean energy, where there is vibrant biodiversity in, in our parks and in our forests, where there is clear running rivers that flow out to the ocean. Like that's the world that I have in my mind. That's the world that I'm striving to create. And when we articulate, you know, those visions, I think we, you know, reorientate people to look a certain way together and go, okay, well, I will figure out how we can get there together and it will be different steps that each of us takes to achieve that vision. But instead of being corralled and cornered by negative and threatening thoughts, we're actually encouraged to be imaginative and to step forward um, and create something better. Yeah, and to be proactive in what it is that you do that of itself is life-affirming Yes, during challenging times. Um, and I'm particularly thinking of, you know, as you say, that the debate can be can corral us into very narrow, reductive spaces, and we all know it's complex. You know, so let's be positive and and informed. But um, the idea of radical adaptation and mitigation they go together, don't they? And so much something to me that seems a bit lacking from our uh, public discourse is that you know these extreme events we know they're happening. We're having another one as we speak, and how are we putting coping with those? events coming on the back of each other and really radically planning for it. So we know there's going to be a big bushfire after this La Nina if we don't manage the landscape incredibly well. Is that, does that resonate with you? Yes, we need to be absolutely more, you know, forward thinking. And I think, unfortunately, as a society, we've become very, you know, narrow thinking and short-term thinking. We fail to actually look back at the past, you know, where we have come from, understanding what previous generations have done, what has worked well, what hasn't worked well. We have failed to really look forward, like far into the future and think about, well, where do we want to be in 100, 200 years? Like, where are we striving to go? And I think, you know, that longer time frame then actually helps position us here in the, in the present and actually asking us, well, what steps do we need to take now? Because what we're currently doing is definitely not working. The way we're consuming, using, exploiting the natural world is setting us on a path for absolute failure. We've got the IPCC coming out saying we're code red for humanity. I mean, what more do we need to wake up and go, we are at a point in history where we have to take this problem seriously. We have to work together in a collaborative manner 
to overcome this, yes, we can achieve great things, but my God, we've got to act now. <laughs> yeah, that's right, this decade. And as you elaborate in the book, our food producers and systems are absolutely at the receiving end of climate change. And as you elaborate in the book, farmers are part of the problem, but perhaps even more so, very much a part of the solution across the landscape. Soil carbon, reforestation, sinks and more, and, and everyday choices in how we choose, eat, produce food. Um, and our farmers were very much in the spotlight at Glasgow, COP26, and in our media recently. COP26, Glasgow, what happened and what does it mean for farmers was the subject of a recent Farmers for Climate Action webinar. Uh, Dr Kate Dooley from, uni, from the University of Melbourne spoke about how COP26 has been dubbed the nature-based COP. Uh, with the final text emphasising the need to protect and restore nature and ecosystems, and with pledges being achieved on agriculture, forests and land use to help tackle deforestation, particularly in agricultural commodities, and uh, that relates a lot to rainforests and more, along with an agriculture innovation mission for climate that was signed onto by more than 30 countries, including Australia. One hot initiative from COP26 that Australia did not sign on for, however, was the Global Methane Pledge. In reporting at the time, Australian News told us that Australia is the 12th largest methane producer and that some 50% of that is attributable to agriculture. But since then, there have been European reports about research and new satellite imaging of Australian methane emissions that indicate Australian methane emissions may be way, way higher than what is being reported, uh, particularly from mines, uh, with potential methane alone from places like the Bowen Basin being the equivalent to the total carbon footprint of a medium-sized European country like Austria or the Czech Republic. According to the researcher, Mr Lilong, and that's just from 50 mines alone in the Bowen Basin. You're not expecting you to uh, uh, respond to that, but if confirmed, it looks to completely blow the split for Australian agriculture's methane responsibility out of the water, i.e. a whole lot less. It's a huge and hairy topic, and I don't want to put you on the spot to talk in detail about COP26, the Australian way, the future technology roadmap, and the lack of mention of or planning for extreme events and their costs in those plans and all that freights with that. I think we've sort of alluded to that already anyway. But I do want to ask you, Annika, do you ever feel that Australian farmers are perhaps being asked to wear more than their fair share of responsibility to respond to the climate crisis? vis-a-vis -vis other sectors, especially fossil fuel exports? Well, I think, you know, every individual and every sector has a responsibility to do as much as they can, absolutely. And it is in all of our interests to do as much as we possibly can. And when I look across the farming sector here in Australia, I, I'm always so inspired um, and encouraged by the work that Aussie farmers are doing. And, you know, when I reflect on Farmers for Climate Action, for instance, for an organisation that formed five, six years ago, we now have six and a half thousand members here in Australia, farmers who have joined us because they know that this is a very real problem and they want to be part of the solution. And that's incredibly inspiring. But farmers obviously can't do it alone. We can't <laughs> get on top of this problem by ourselves. Yes, there's great work being done in terms of how do we reduce methane emissions from our ruminant animals? How do we sequester carbon in vegetation and soils? How do we improve fertilizer practices to reduce nitrous oxide emissions? There's great steps being taken, but we really need to ramp up and amplify those steps. And we need to encourage other sectors to be pulling their weight too. And the, the largest and most important contributor to climate change is it's the burning of fossil fuels for energy. And that's also one of the easiest and most cost-effective ways to quickly reduce emissions. So hearing stats like that about, you know, methane leaks and contributions from the Australian energy sector and the way that we're using natural resources, it is deeply concerning. It's also missing the opportunities that we have as a nation. We are the sunniest and one of the windiest continents on earth. We have huge potential for our homes, our businesses, our kids' schools to be running off clean renewable energies. Our chief Australian scientist has said that we could be 
a renewable energy superpower, you know, exporting this to other parts of the globe, you know, bringing in that, that wealth and that um, skills expertise from new in industries. But those are opportunities that we're currently not reaching out and grasping at this point in time. And I guess this is why myself and so many people out there are, you know, speaking loudly and advocating for more and, you know, better and an increased rate of change because we know that we're, we're not on top of this problem. We are far from on top of this problem. Yes, there is good work being done across the country in fragmented efforts. It is meaningful. It should be celebrated. But we really need to ramp it up now. Like that, that window of opportunity that we have to get on top of this problem is quickly closing. So we need to be more ambitious. We need to be having these difficult conversations and asking the tough questions. Well, how do we drastically, quickly reduce emissions? Yes, it might feel temporarily uncomfortable, but we've got to do it. And as you say, Australian farmers and industry groups on across the board pretty much have have set really ambitious targets along with the states already, which is which is really positive and exciting. Do you think, given the intrinsic the intrinsic value of food and of ruminants and meat, and we're omnivores, do, do you think um, we perhaps need a more nuanced narrative around agricultural methane in terms of, uh, especially from animal production, that can also produce agroecological co-benefits? Um, and, and like at the moment, agriculture is really in the spotlight. And as you say, everyone must pull their weight. But when you hear about these massive fugitive emissions from mining alone, let alone the burning of the fossil fuels when they're offshore, do you sort of feel that maybe agriculture is being asked to do more than its fair share or perhaps it goes to the intrinsic value of food and, and the ecological services that animals and people in the landscape engender? Well, I definitely think there needs to be yeah, more nuanced conversation around this topic. And I guess the, the challenge with climate change is it, it is very complex and what different sectors, different regions, different communities can do is quite different. And I often you know, look across at my neighbour's farm and what they can do in response to climate change and adaptation and mitigation efforts is going to be different from what we can do on our family farm right next door because we have different labour resources. We have different financial capacity. We have different soil types and natural resources at hand. So I find it sometimes challenging when we try and, yeah, create a, a broad brush of what we should do or what this means or the implications because it is at such a, a fine detail that we need to respond and act and what the implications are. So I know I haven't answered your question very well there at all. No, no, but it's nuanced. And I was talking about nuance. Yeah. And you're talking about particularity of place and 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 people's abilities and resources. And that's completely yes. spot on. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that sort of then goes into one of my um what I talk in my book about the diversity and needing a diversity of input and conversation and people involved is because because of that that nuance and that complexity of this topic and these systems that we actually do need people from all walks of life, uh, all ages, backgrounds, um, race, religion, socioeconomic situation, geographic situation, contributing to the conversation, giving their insights and skills and expertise, and also working out, you know, where do we want to go as a, you know, as a whole society and how do we work better together to actually get there? And as you say in the book, in various places, you know, it, it needs diverse conversations and difficult conversations, um, and that, but, but that a fair transition to a decarbonised future mm. requires all people, particularly rural people, farmers and mining communities in the same places all concerned about similar things and the people they love to be heard and to have to have and to share the conversation yeah what do you have to say to miners and mining communities in your book and perhaps more generally or is it just an iteration of what you've already sort of uh, said yeah well I mean the the miners and the mining community have done so much for our society and our country I mean we people have asked them to do certain things 
for our benefit and we have benefited from them. So I completely disagree with the narrative that we should be demonizing certain people or groups or, you know, casting them to the side because, well, you know, we're now enlightened and that's the wrong way of doing things. So, <laughs> um, so I think we absolutely need to be working with people in, in all sectors, you know, from the farmers who can improve their practices, from the, the energy industry who need to improve their practices, working together and ensuring that there is a, a smooth and a just transition. And that just transition means that we don't leave anyone behind. We don't leave any community behind. We work harder and give more energy in those places which are going to be more challenged um, by this transition that we're experiencing as a as a nation and as a world uh, how do we you know help upskill so people can move to new industries how can we provide you know insurance benefits motivators um, you know so it takes the fear out of the transition and I guess that's going back into like describing our visions like reorientating ourselves together so we know what steps we need to take together to get to a certain place. Yeah, I read recently of um, Charlie Rogers, who's a psychology student in Queensland, who's set up a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, it's called It's What Queenslanders Do campaign. And it aims to, it's all about aiming to share the views of miners and graziers about climate change through a range of different platforms and conversations uh, in the lead up to the 2022 mm. election. So, so that's um really nice to hear about. Yeah, that's brilliant. A really interesting fact to me that was highlighted at the Farmers for Climate Action COP26 webinar was that of the 100 largest economies in the world, 69 are companies and only 31 are countries. Uh, and a fair slice of those large economies, company economies, are likely to be transnational food and agribusiness companies. So the strategic point, us, I guess, was that while policy and action needs definitely to, to be led by governments, global change making can and should also come from industry. Your book is relatively quiet or perhaps diplomatic on the subject of large food and agribusiness players and on their influence uh, on our food systems and the, and the nutrition transitions toward highly processed, high food mild Western diets that are certainly accelerating in low and middle income countries and in our region. Um, with your international hat or lenses on, would you like to comment or to reflect on how you see or understand large international food companies to be performing or trending in the sustainability space or perhaps in the countries where you've done research and worked? They were very well represented and some might say overrepresented at the UN Food Systems Summit this year. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but obviously complex, but they're big players and they've got huge influence and a lot of them are doing amazing things, but they're certainly impacting on rainforests. Mm, yeah, it's such an interesting um, space. And as you say, when I was listening to the webinar from Farmers for Climate Action the other day, I, I also was like, wow, like <laughs> there are some amazing stats. Yeah, so obviously very large corporations have a lot of influence. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of finances behind them, which enable them to have a lot of power and influence. So we have to be conscious of that. But I also think like these corporations and businesses, like they're not uh, a scientific fact, which is, okay, they're there and they're always going to be there. I mean, we people have put them in place just as we individuals, you know, elect politicians and create these political systems. We create the markets and these social systems and these organizations as well. And it is up to us as, as individuals and communities to then try and change these very large and daunting systems. But we can, and we need to remember that. We are, you know, the consumers, the purchasers, the people who drive the systems. And when we decide to stop driving the systems or asking the systems to change, and we do it at, you know, with the number of people that is necessary, then change is, is possible. So I guess... In that regard, we really need to reflect, thinking about our, our purchasing habits, what businesses, what corporations are we actually financially supporting and therefore encouraging of certain behaviours? How can we, if we decide, well, that corporation or that organisation, those values don't align with my own, or how can I financially support another <laughs> business or market that does align with my values? 
And we, we do, again, need to take on that responsibility, you know, that, that accountability of where we are putting our own finances, what, what asks we are making of the system, uh, where we are encouraging and where, where, where we are discouraging certain behaviours. Thanks for that, Annika. Which sort of leads into your latter chapters, which by the end of the book, you know, by the end of the book, you've set out the climate challenges, the aesthetics and the drivers of why and how to cultivate climate courage. And then you move toward solutions, leadership, vision and action. And you know, it's leading into, you know, you know your wonderful chapters about um, solutions, accelerators and leadership with lots of practical tips. Let's talk about that. Would you like to tell us about some of your perhaps most favourite low fruit actions or solutions uh, that you can see farmers and eaters being a part of now? Well, so many people sort of go, oh, it's it's such a complex, big, overwhelming problem. Like, I don't have time for it. it. It will be costly. I'll have to sacrifice things. And actually, when we actually look at the solutions that we can do as individuals, they're not terribly timely or costly. And we don't actually have to sacrifice much at all. It's just being conscious about how we're interacting with our planet. On the farm, at home, at the market. <laughs> exactly. And one very easy way to, you know, be involved with climate change and climate action is through the food on our plate. And this, I guess, is where I land with the book as, you know, when we go to a supermarket or a market and purchase our food, when we actually open the fridge door, when we sit at the kitchen table, what we are putting on our plate does have a flow-on effect right through the food system. So by choosing to eat local, seasonal, nutrient-dense foods, encouraging native foods, avoiding foods that have been flown in from the other side of the world and is smothered in plastic and styrofoam, you know, choosing to pay a fair price for food, a price that actually fairly compensates the farmer and gives them the financial resources to make changes to the farming system, to destock when there is a drought, to keep the trees standing, even though, you know, so they have the, the capacity to adapt to a changing climate. And then also, how do we actually waste food? Because food waste is such a huge issue here in Australia. I think we throw out one in four supermarket bags of food. And if food waste was a country, it would be like the third largest emitter. Like it is just such a huge issue that we don't even talk about properly in this country. Yeah, food waste and food loss. Exactly. And so if we just respected our food more, if we consumed it more consciously and wasted less, that would go a very long way in solving these problems. And we realise, well, it's not unachievable. We all can actually do something. And on, and on leadership, what, what are some of the pointers you suggest that, you know, are really handy tips to all of us to how we can best cultivate and sustain personal leadership and any energy, I suppose? Well, something I say in my book is be the leader that you've been waiting for. We often sit back and think, well, someone will do something about this. And we actually need to look at ourselves and go, well, what am I doing about this? Yes, you know, maybe it does feel a bit awkward. You know, maybe it will be a, a challenging conversation with someone across the kitchen table. Um, but these are, this is where courage comes into it. When we reflect on what we care about, of what we don't want damaged or threatened by this climate crisis, we do realise, well, it's up to us to actually step up, to engage in this difficult conversation, to make changes in our lives, to help others understand the, the impacts that are occurring and to help create that world, that vision that we have in our minds. And you talk about, you know, the need to collaborate to compete together, not against each other, and, and, you know, highlighting the positive, remaining optimistic, taking time to recharge and sustain yourself and, you, you know, those you love, um, and, and leaving the clubhouse, you know, seeking out strange bedfellows and partners to work together. That's, that's a really key message too. And what, what about accelerators? What you talk about, these three big groups of accelerators that individuals and organisations can get behind to... Um, to, to support greater collective impact and to help build those social tipping points. Would you like to just refer to those a bit? Um, so to accelerate, I mean, we can accelerate through behavioural change and, um, you know, 
as I mentioned, sort of like looking at at an individual level or what we can do, we can make changes in the way that we're you know, where we're putting our finances and the, the systems that we're financially supporting. And also we need for those, you know, that transformative change that we need. We need political change too. We need, you know, that change in, in strategy and guidance of where we're going. And that obviously then flows into, you know, confidence for investors in research and all of those things. So yeah, there, there's many things ac- across the spectrum that would help increase the rate at which we're going and and that's what we need. And they're interconnected, policy, capital, behaviour, actions at different levels all interacting and and, and growing the change. Thanks thanks for that. Your final chapter, Action, (laughs) offers a menu of sorts or or a work journal of things that readers can consider and plan to do today, tomorrow, this week, this month and this year to influence change and accelerate turning the vision of a better food system into reality. It it offers so many really doable practical tools and tips and I'll just uh, refer readers to it. (laughs) It's just, it's lovely. Um, But the final story you tell in the book is of your future forward blue sky vision for your farm and the world it's nested in. It paints a a vivid alternative reality for the future and it's just really beautiful and really informed. A bit of utopia, but lots, but lots of really grounded, great ideas in there. It tells of landscape-wide rewilding, um, of the small mammals, the bandicoots and bilbies, you know, restored in, in, in number across the landscape and foraging, those little ecosystem engineers bringing soil nutrients and the landscape to better health. And I heard, heard um, Aaron Pedersen on ABC last night talking exactly about that with them. It was just beautiful. Um, and it also speaks of the salvation farms in shipping containers sent by the international community to feed displaced and vulnerable people in times of crises. And many of those crises may well be from extreme weather disaster events. So it's a really beautiful vision. And um wrap up your book thank you can i ask you annika what do you hope we will be eating from your farm when you and your family have realized your vision oh that is a good question um we're definitely at you know a a point of like questioning you know where we have come from where we're at now and where we are going forward and it's a it's a you know it's, it's a daunting time but it's also an exciting time where we get to choose you know, our future and really work on that and be conscious about how we're moving forward and what what we're moving towards. What I think people will be eating in the future from my family's farm if my vision is realised, I hope it will be, it will be native. It will be nutrient dense. It will be seasonal and it will be delicious and worth celebrating. (laughs) Of course it will be. And will the sheep still be there? I don't think the sheep will still be here. Yeah, but they'll have a nice time in the transition, won't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Look, these are big conversations that we're having. but they are, particularly in fragile landscapes. Absolutely, but these are conversations we need to front up and to have. Um, And it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time for the food and farming system. And when we work together, I think we're going to achieve great things. I have no doubt about that. Any further thoughts or comments you might like just to make or offer? I think we've done a great job of covering a lot of topics. So, <laughs> no. Uplifting practical food for the soul, spirit and the planet. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Annika, and for what you do. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Anthea. I've been speaking with Annika Molesworth about her new wonderful book, Our Sunburnt Country, that was published by Pan Macmillan Australia, and it's available from all good bookstores and online booksellers. Congratulations, Annika. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on facebook at nourishing matters to chew on if you like what you hear and would like to support us you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.